Welcome to Steeped in the 10,000 Things, a podcast where we look at research from the perspective of acupuncture and integrative medicine, as well as public health and epidemiology. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Michael Brown. I'm the other guy, Zachary Krebs. Today we'll be looking at vaccines and discussing our personal journey of understanding vaccines from a parent perspective, from a student of acupuncture and Chinese medicine perspective, and from a licensed medical provider perspective. We'll be looking at the journey of the, the philosopher, how we process and integrate new ideas and information. We'll be looking at vaccine skeptic arguments and looking at pitfalls and logical fallacies around vaccinations and how we make decisions as individuals for our family and also uh, for patients. So we may also get to a similar conversation around COVID-19 and false dichotomies, a lot of uh, topical discussion around some of the false dichotomies that have come up, the false dilemmas that are running rampant in social media, uh, this tendency towards black and white messaging about what should we do and what should be done and how that creates more confusion and conflict and kind of dis destroys efforts to properly and appropriately manage uh, the pandemic. So the tea we're drinking, we're actually both drinking the same tea because I sent Zach some some teas. And we'll try to highlight those teas over the next number of shows. But today, what, what are we drinking? You we're drinking the pine needle green tea, the spring harvest uh, that you sent me. And when I got that box of teas, I was so happy. I was so tired and I woke up and saw that box. I was just looked through all the samples. I'm really excited about this tea. Um, but yeah, it's a green tea. It's pretty, it's a whole leaf green tea, pretty long, actually, the needle in it. It's a yeah. pine needle. I, I think that's how it gets its name. It looks like a long pine needle. And it's a really beautiful, very uh, kind of rich blue-green color to the leaf before it's brewed. Very dark, dark blue-green. Yeah, I'm on my second or third steep right now. Oh, nice. I, I had a little bit of a midday slump. And then I'm back to where I was mentally. So I know there's a little bit of a caffeine boost from it, but I let it sit pretty, pretty long and it doesn't have a super um, bitter tannic flavor to it, even when it's over steeped, at least for me. So I've been really enjoying it. And I like to steep in my Gaiwan and I like those mm. long needles because they're not falling out like some of the yeah. small cut green teas. Right. It's very yeah, this sweet tasting. Yeah, it does have a nice sweet, uh, sweet grass. Uh, I get like, almost like bean sprout, mung bean sprout, kind of sweet crispness. Uh, it, it's a really refreshing. It has some kind of honey floral notes when I smell it. It's almost like I'm smelling some honey. I can I can smell that as well. It's, it's so interesting after someone says something about a tea and then you smell it or drink it and you're like, oh, is, was it there the whole time or are they convincing it's it's there but i know there's like um, training programs to go through all the different tea flavors and smells and like be very knowledgeable about it i'm really basic on that but well, I, think yeah, I think a lot of my listening to beer 
podcasts and discussions and learning how to taste beer and wine and things like that, I pick up some of those concepts. And, and I, I think distilling down some of the basic ideas is just the sense of smell and how our brain works uh, in terms of interpreting smell and taste. It's a very complex, almost mysterious, still very mysterious process. And so there's really no wrong answers and everybody's sensory processing of smell and taste is slightly different, particularly with smell. And, and it has, it's in part due to the fact that I believe if I'm going to say this correctly, but it, it's because of how smell is processed deep in the brain in relationship to experiences and um, very personal emotional memories. So uh, any kind of memory or thought or, or triggering that a smell causes is, is very personal. So um, I, I know people who teach how to taste and smell beer, tea, wine, all those things, teach people to just be free about your associations and what it triggers for you and what it what it signals for you, so. This one came at a good time. I was uh, a little stressed out earlier today and then I practiced my Qigong forms, like a more of a hard Qigong, more stretching out. I was building up a lot of heat and sweating and my fingers were kind of swelling with blood and just feeling super energized. And then I sat down and drank this tea and now I feel really chill. So it, it's done its magic. Yeah, it's a really nice, smooth, green tea. Actually, I'm curious what you, what temperature you brewed it at. I brewed mine at 165 Fahrenheit for about maybe one or two minutes, a little longer than I, I intended to, but it came out okay. But it's definitely pretty strong. But I did it at a lower temperature. Interesting. Uh, I know that greens like this need to be at a lower temperature. So my, um, my kettle, I just bring it up to boil and then I'll take it other room and I'll pop the lid off of it and I'll uh, pour it into my Gaiwan and then I'll let it steep without the lid on. So I'm imagining after all those temperature changes, it's definitely probably under 200 degrees. So I can't tell you exactly, but. But definitely hotter. It's interesting. And, and it's still, you're not getting too much bitterness. No, but maybe it's about how much leaf material I use mm. or the kind of water that we have. I mean, hmm. That's true. Do you use tap water? Um, in this case, I used water that is tap water, but it's left out and then boiled. So in Eugene, we don't have fluoridated water. So um, if we have not chlorine, but the other one, fluoramine, or sorry, I'm forgetting how to pronounce it, but it evaporates into the air after a period of time. Right. So we have pretty good water here, but I don't know, people say you need to go get like the jugs of spring water and plastic, and I'm a little skeptical of that too. So, I mean, ideally, I'd just be you know, drinking tea at the you know base of a mountain with the purest water in like a natural serene setting, but today, I'm not doing that. I use reverse osmosis water, which has almost nothing in it, which I find really accentuates all the minerality and flavors of the tea. It's close to distilled, but not quite distilled, so. I've I've tried using our tap tap water and it it's we have very minerally water here very high levels of uh, calcium carbonate we also have um, all the like sterilizers and things in it like 
the chlorines or, or whatever they're using to sanitize it. Uh, and it's just, I've tried to make tea with it, or if I run out of RO water and it just, it dampens the flavor of whatever tea I make so dramatically that it's in comparison, it's, it's not even enjoyable. Sometimes you lose a lot of the subtle flavors. It's, it's like it flattens all the peaks and valleys of the, the tea. So I hear you on that. One of my uh, tea friends came over and spent the night. We we're doing a Tai Chi workshop and I even used a Brita filter with our tap water and made some tea and he was a little bit upset about how it like ruined the tea because he's a super taster kind of person. So he's just wasn't okay with it. And then <laughs> I felt kind of judged. So there's just so many levels of like tea. I mean, when you think of tea, like water is obviously one of the most important ingredients. Um, but considering the global issues with water supply and contamination, I feel lucky if I could do better, I, I, I would, it just, you know, we'll work on that. <laughs> I'll get that filter. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So this is, this excellent tea to share. I'm glad that I can share it with you. Yeah. Enough about tea. I'm going to talk about the important things now. I mean, tea is pretty important, but about um, where do we see ourselves in the landscape of information and expertise in regards to vaccination in general? Yeah, we were going to, we were going to talk about the, the different perspectives on, on vaccines. We find ourselves, you and I in particular, find ourselves kind of in the middle of, of two extremes, I think, uh, which is, is nice to share that position because it's, it's an awkward position at times, but you and I both come from, uh, I mean, when I first started hearing about concerns around vaccines, it was in school, it was in acupuncture school. I think some of my teachers would bring up certain things that, that uh, people were concerned about, namely uh, the just general increase in the number of, of vaccines that uh, children get nowadays. Um, there was a general just kind of curiosity or wondering or, or natural questioning about that and the safety of that. And it started me thinking and, and I didn't really get trained to or know how to uh, seek out research and how to understand uh, larger scale epidemiological studies and how these kinds of things are, are determined to be safe. So I, I kind of gravitated or naturally became skeptical and uh, that changed around when I became a parent and started to have to actually make decisions. Uh, and also somewhat around the same time I was getting my, my doctorate. So I was looking at research, uh, how research is done uh, and, and started to really appreciate the amount of care that goes into making decisions and, and creating guidelines around uh, vaccination schedules and, and developing of vaccines and how uh, vaccines have helped eliminate certain diseases that we can now enjoy the relative uh, naive uh, safety, you know, or we don't have to worry about polio uh, at the moment. 
And I saw just this last week, they, there was a big headline saying that they've eliminated polio in the continent of Africa, which was a huge goal. So that, as, as just seeing those kinds of things, I slowly started to, to wonder, well, maybe, maybe the risk benefit is such that it's actually better to support these kinds of large scale public health projects even though I have personal concerns and, and it definitely makes me ask questions, I, I still think and started to think that, you know what, I live in a community, I live in a global community that's very interconnected. And if we can eliminate some of these diseases that have a huge burden on uh, public health, and maybe some of them aren't as big a concern in our area, uh, but contribute to global disease burdens and particularly in underdeveloped areas of the world if we can keep certain especially infectious diseases very infectious diseases under control or eventually eliminate them that would that would be a good thing and the only way to to do that uh, because of the the nuances of the immune system is to kind of continue strategizing and implementing vaccination as a, as a, one of the strategies to to handle disease. So I'm, I'm rambling, but I'm curious um, a little bit about your journey. You had mentioned, you had kind of told me a brief summary of it earlier. So I started out as someone who was against vaccinations, even though I was fully vaccinated. My mom is a nurse, so she made sure that I received all my shots. And I remember distinctly that as a kid, um, running outside on some farmland and like, uh, getting a big spray for something with fence with some wood or metal on it and then having to get a tetanus shot. Very, you know, like it was like a need. It was like a freak out moment. So, you know, I came from that. Uh, and then I started hanging out with the, my Tai Chi teacher in the North Chinese medicine community. And then I switched more to a individualized version of health and was more against vaccines uh, because I wanted to... Um, invest in my own health decisions and choices and those seemed like a, an unnecessary intervention for me uh, and then many years later I uh, decided to get into Chinese medicine school so I got my undergraduate credits at a public health school and a lot of courses around population health came up and then my views changed a little bit more um, as you start I think the big problem is in America or the USA people start are they, they tend to think of the USA being the whole world. <laughs> but when you look at the global burden of disease, um, vaccinations policies have done really amazing things worldwide. Like I was just reading earlier today that, you know, two to three million deaths are um, prevented each year through um, various vaccinations, like tetanus, whooping coughs, and measles, for instance. So uh, if you just look at some of the data about preventable diseases declining as vaccination levels increase worldwide, you, even if you didn't like vaccinations, you'd have to at least, for yourself, you'd have to at least look at that information. So that swayed me a little bit. Yeah. But I've also listened to people in our profession uh, that do um, functional medicine and uh, also advanced research into the immune system. Mm -hmm. And they are advocating a more individualized person-by-person person approach to medicine, mm -hmm. so they are more skeptical of these mass public health policies 
where we, you know, force a medical intervention on someone because it could have a risk. So I've just been looking at that and it's just a discussion of acceptable risk and what's good for me, what's good for my neighbor. And my views are still developing on that. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's where we end up in similar to the current pandemic and the very soon to be ever consuming discussion around vaccinations for the coronavirus, which is causing a lot of uh, death and disease. A couple of things. One, it's helpful to remember that we're not just worried about uh, deaths, which obviously are unfortunate and bad, and we try to avoid unnecessary death. Uh, but there's also disease burden, like as is seen with certain diseases. Polio is a good example. Uh, I just treated a patient who's in his late 70s who still is struggling uh, and has struggled all his life due to a polio infection when he was a child. Uh, So if you talk to people like him, uh, and I know other people who survived polio, they are very adamant that vaccinations are helpful because they they have a direct experience with how it can can be can save uh, quality of life and prevent debilitating lifelong disease and pain and things like that now not all things are like that but as we're seeing with covid-19 there are uh, a growing number of people as we discussed in a previous podcast who have what looks like uh, ongoing challenges, health challenges that we don't know uh, how long some people's bodies will struggle after uh, these infections. And if we can prevent the more severe kind of severe expression of those diseases, uh, which could be an outcome of the vaccine, then that seems like a, a good thing. Uh, and of course, this is always with the, the caveat of, of safety and generalized safety, which is why you see public health and infectious disease experts who are, are used to developing these things constantly saying like, yes, everyone wants to get a vaccine as soon as possible, especially political leaders who need uh, to tout success and point to their success. But we always have to follow safety protocols and safety means carefully going through the developed processes of of ever-increasing, uh, expanding testing on, on larger and larger populations, starting with animals, then small group of people, then larger group of people. We can't force and, and rush these things uh, because there are, are very well-understood risks and ways that they could go very badly. Uh, so I mm. think this is, the more I, I think I read and learned about how these things are developed, and how they're analyzed, and how they're uh, studied. I, I realized that people who are working in this area take these things very, very seriously and definitely care about individual health as much as these large population-based concerns. That they're not you know, evil masterminds. They're, they're very, usually very caring, intelligent uh, scientists trying to do the best for the most people, and, and that can be challenging because human bodies are delicate and unique and, and strange. And yeah, that's I'm why I'm just smiling uh, over here yeah, because yeah. you're, you're, you're like loaded up a paper about COVID-19 and false dichotomies. So that's like, yeah, uh, it's a perfect, like, perfect yeah, in, correlation or, or example. 
individual medicine people are good you know population health people are just trying to control everyone right that's not a real dichotomy it's like yeah people who do vaccine development science understand how individual health works and if you send them something they'll take a look at it it's yeah, not like they're right. just ignorant that was my experience as a parent with a pediatrician uh, we expressed a general concern when our son was just born he had a very traumatic birth uh, he was already being given antibiotics that we knew weren't going to be great, but were an absolute necessity, according to the doctors when he was born. It's just because of certain circumstances, they said he had to have these antibiotics. So we were like, okay, that that makes us sad and upset that that has to happen. But we know that the body is resilient. We're going to cross our fingers and and just accept the circumstances, uh, he's alive, that's what matters. And so because of that, we were also afraid of them also giving the, the vaccines that they give the first day, namely the Hep B vaccine. And we know that Hep B is, is not prevalent in this society, in our society, in our community. So, and we explained this to the pediatrician who understood our concerns and agreed. He said, you know what? It's okay. I'm not going to make you do it. I, I hear your concern and I hear your thoughts. Uh, it makes sense what you're saying. So you, you're going to, I'll let you decide. So nobody forced us. Uh, and an infant isn't trying to get into a school where you need vaccines to get into. So it wasn't a, a concern. We knew he could get it eventually. Uh, we just thought in conjunction with massive dose of antibiotics due to a traumatic birth, like why why inject one other little thing to screw up uh, a delicate system? You know, even if there wasn't any risk that it's measurable or has been looked at, we were, we felt like we need, I think we needed to have some control too and feel like we had some control over what felt like an uncontrollable situation. So I totally understand the impulse to want to have complete and utter control over the safety of one's children. Uh, it's a, a normal instinct. And at mm -hmm. the same time, we're trying to be reasonable about it and say, yeah, I have a hep B vaccine. I've gone through the the three different injections when I was a teenager. So I knew it's a useful vaccine to have, especially if you want to travel around the world. Uh, but we also knew it didn't have to happen in that moment. We knew it could happen later when things were more settled and we knew his, his health was stable. And, and so that's what we based it on. Now, God forbid anything were to have gone wrong or even let's say he had more severe health signs of, of disease or something going on, who knows if that would have, how I would have responded in those situations. But I, I try to bring together, try to find the middle middle way and, and know that there is good reason to have these things and to use them. Uh, but there's also, we need to have uh, autonomy at the same time. So I feel like nobody has forced me into getting and giving vaccines uh, to our, our son. Uh, and at the same time, if, if we want to participate in the, the education programs around us, the schools, we do have to, to get them. But I feel like that's a reasonable reasonable request, a reasonable guideline to keep communities safe. And 
it to the individualized medicine discussion, there are medical exemptions. So if a person has clear medical signs of, of vulnerability or immune issues uh, or family history of seizures or family history of autoimmune diseases, there are, you, you can get exemptions. It's not like we live in a complete and utter totalitarian medical state. There are reasonable conversations being had. And I, I feel like if that weren't the case, you wouldn't have that option. So mm. that's the fear that the choices will be taken away and all exemptions will be removed. And so um, people want that autonomy. And it's an interesting contrast between you know, what the data says something's doing and the autonomy of any population or group of people. It has to be mutual trust and respect there. So I was like just looking at something like measles, like there's been measles outbreaks in Oregon. Right. Um, and so just looking at the statistics, like you know, before the measles vaccines really were vaccines taken on on the global level, there are millions of people who died of it estimated each year. And now that number is down to, I think in 2017, uh, about 100,000 deaths. So when they're, when you're just looking at such a vast reduction of people, um, you have a disease compared to after the vaccination is introduced, then from that vantage point, when you look at exemptions, it's like, okay, if you make the exemption too easy, then no one will do it. And then measles will come back. And then, so it's, it, there is a lot of calculating and it's unfortunate, but I think it should always be humanized, like the story you share. And so people's needs to have a sense of control over their medical journey is an, an important thing and it should not be overlooked. And so. I, I'm really grateful to see both sides of that debate now. And yeah. my my son and his birth was actually eerily similar to what you mentioned in feelings of loss of control. And also um, my son had to have some antibiotics after his birth due to a respiratory issue. Uh, and I talked to the person who wasn't on normal pediatrician who's the one on call on site and uh, he was kind of uh, mocking to me in tone. I said, like, I've read some studies about the uh, microbiome and taking, um, you know, antibacterial medicine, antibiotics so early. And he just shrugged it off and said that breast milk contains uh, probiotics, so I shouldn't worry about it. And he was so confident and dismissive of me. That feeling has stuck with me to this day. So it's like, I understand it's in the middle of the night, you know, people have various reasons they do and don't do things. I can't even imagine being on, you know, the other end of that. But so then there's that level and there's the public health level, the patient level. It's, it's just, I think we just need better communication and more education. I think that'll help a lot. And then of course, there's just going to be people who disagree. Yeah. There'll always be people who disagree. Move on. Yeah. Which brings up the, the topic of, of using citations. And if you're making <laughs> if you're making claims 
make sure that those claims are backed up, uh, especially if you're writing a document. Um, the example that you brought uh, was a Bob Flaws book, which was published a number of years ago. But he's a very influential, a very influential person in Chinese medical, uh, East Asian medical community, and a lot of his books uh, are textbooks or or often the first books that people interact with uh, when studying. Chinese and East Asian medicine. And I have a short story about that that might be relevant. Like I bought this book, Keeping Your Child Healthy with Chinese Medicine, The Parent's Guide, etc. Um, when I was just about to get into Chinese medicine school and I knew that this dilemma was going to come up about what to do with raising my son and his mental choices. So I as a parent was just looking for any books on Chinese pediatric knowledge and this was the main one. And, you know, then I was like, oh, this must all be true. And I started reading through it before I really looked at studies or like citations more seriously. So if you just took it at face value, it would definitely um, create the impression that you should be very, very skeptical of most vaccinations and a lot of childhood care procedures. But there's also some really good stuff in it, too. Yeah. And I think we were we were picking through it. Um... You had found uh, some specific excerpts uh, on page 47. There's the topic of avoidance of immun avoidance of immunizations, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps like that. And I think he's trying to take a similarly kind of middle way uh, view, just acknowledging certain concerns. Uh, but he makes some claims here that that I feel need a citation or are just completely unfounded or uh, misinterpreting things. So for example, he states, quote, however, there is a growing body of literature that proves there are real risks with routine vaccinations, end quote. Uh, and I wrote, uh, citation needed. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's kind of a broad stroke to take there. And, and there are different vaccines, there are different kinds of vaccines. And there are different studies of different vaccines and their safety. So if you're going to say that there are real risks with routine vaccinations, um, you, I need to see that evidence because that seems like an overgeneralization or just something that's not actually correct or maybe blown out of proportion. Because uh, if that were the case, uh, then millions of people would be seriously injured by these routine vaccinations that billions of people get. So. And this might be obviously a topic for a lengthier future episode, but right. I think their fear is that due to the increase of vaccinations in our population, that there is a rise of inexplicable autoimmune conditions. So they've made that correlation in mind, which in some cases there's some okay evidence, but it's not exactly proven or anything. It's a hypothesis. And so right. they're saying, yeah, you know, there's this reporting system with all these adverse events for immunizations. So that shows how scary and dangerous they are because people have issues when they have an intervention in their body. But really, all medicine has risks, um, but some are more safe than others. So that's an example of a pretty big logical fallacy uh, to say that because they wanted to create a safety network so we would know if something bad happened, that proves that something's bad. And right. You had a counter argument for that. But at the end of the day, 
um, if there's payouts and we can't, the argument is that if we can't sue the vaccine manufacturers directly and we have to go through this weird court to do it, then like it must be bad because they're protected. And that's, that's a really intricate discussion. And I'd like to go through that in the future to like yeah. take all of those points and just look at them at face value and just see what is true about that or not all those fears or at least some of them. Yeah. And I think the one thing I just wanted to say about that reporting system is that it's there to help the ongoing management of safety and the ongoing updating of an improvement of safety of vaccines. Also, it's, it's an open system where you can report anything from like mild headaches, mild fevers, those kinds of symptoms that are common with an immune reaction to certain kinds of vaccines. In fact, you know, it's like the flu vaccine. It's, it's not uncommon to have mild immune response that makes you feel like you have a mild infection. Uh, and people could report those as, as these kinds of um, adverse reactions, which I think the point is that an adverse reaction can range from something that's very mild and actually a kind of expected and, and a, and a relatively uh, normal kind of response for the body to have to something like that. Uh, to, of course, the extremes where uh, death is obviously the extreme uh, and seizures, for example. Um, so, and but then we should know like, well, what, what frequency, and that's why they have these systems. So we can know that data and, uh, and it can catch unsafe vaccines. And I, I don't have a, a citation in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the system uh, has caught some vaccinations or, or the, the process of testing, the different phases of testing catch unsafe vaccines from getting into widespread use. So that those systems aren't perfect, but they're a lot better than uh, just, you know, a completely unregulated drug market or no vaccines at all. So I think it's a matter of, of again, like asking the risk benefit and it's hard to sometimes ask that question from a personal perspective and step outside of your personal sense of risk and safety and think on a population scale. So it's challenging. Uh, I agree. And I think generally as a profession, a lot of what's out there is reactive towards immunizations and public health guidelines. But I'd like to see it become more uh, visionary and leadership oriented in its uh, approach um, because we'll have to of course cite these studies in our future conversations but i saw some interesting ones about how uh, the host microbiome um, can actually modulate the response to vaccinations to be more effective for the tighter levels so yeah. maybe there's a role of our medicine to actually facilitate a less risky intervention Absolutely. of vaccination and and what it would take to get there would be overcoming this like categorization of like they're all bad or they're all good. It's more like you're saying there's different kinds of vaccines throughout history. There have been failures, there's been successes and in different populations, they have different responses to how much they work. So what you're eating, where you're living, what you're doing, what your pre-existing health conditions are, your age, all of this is factored into that. Um, so good thing we're educating about it um which is the purpose of this podcast i think a little bit is just to explore the issue so people can really think 
for themselves. And, you know, I was on the fence. I hated vaccines. I, then I was more pro and then I had a little pushback from people I really trusted. And now I'm, I'm just looking, it just gets more specific. So like in this situation for this person at this time in their life, is this a useful thing to do? That's how I see it. Just to jump back to the the idea of of that vaccine injury compensation program, I think one perspective of that is is that it's very, very difficult to prove from a legal standpoint uh, that something caused uh, something to happen in the body. Now, I know there are good examples of that, for example, like... um, the recent large case of uh, against Monsanto slash Bayer and their Roundup product causing certain kind of cancer. Um, so, so there are ways to to prove uh, harm from certain substances over long periods of time. But if I just yeah. ask, like myself, like does the agricultural industry have an incentive to have monocropping and like designer seeds with like one solution like a pesticide that they can control and distribute and financially profit from and then silence people who are damaged by that i think generally there's you would have suspicion there yeah with vaccinations i don't know actually looking to the history there's been some that have been so unprofitable that we had to reorganize even get companies to make certain vaccines so yeah. I don't know if it's the same profit model, but one might be suspicious of that. Um, yeah, the the fact that money is involved definitely complicates things. Um, it's it's challenging. That's kind of a a minefield of of uncertainty too, especially now. But <laughs> that's the Bill Gates argument. You know, right. he planned this whole thing. I mean, it's not like he's already rich enough. Maybe he wants to be wealthier by you know, creating a problem and then solving it. That's kind of like the, the GMO seed pesticide thing. Is it the same? I mean, so is everything, can you just have a personal feeling about that and just group everything into the same thing where everyone is against us? Or is it a little more complicated than that? Conspiracies are hard to maintain for very large groups of people. Like eventually yeah. the data would leak, you would think, right? right? And, and if you just follow the news, things leak quite easily and quickly when they are screwy. Uh, and, you know, that's the whole thing with peer review is people catch problems in people's uh, studies like you've seen in, uh, or we've seen with the coronavirus. There's a lot of people making very interesting claims off interesting data and they get torn to shreds by peer review. And so th- these kinds of st- structures or or processes are designed to catch these kinds of uh, fallacies and not so good intentions around certain ideas and and products so uh, the other thing is is that not all medical systems and not all countries are uh, so heavily captured by uh, corporate influence as the US is so I think that's another place to look to is is 
what are other countries doing with vaccinations and uh, are they seeing any of the same kinds of patterns and problems or or challenges and um, when profit isn't this as as much of an issue in those those uh, situations or those countries if i can add just one small piece to this uh, yeah speaking of these adverse event systems uh, reporting systems so um the poco cooperative the People's Organization of um, Community Acupuncture, um, they created a uh, adverse events reporting system for acupuncture called the acupuncture-consumer-safety.net. And this is just anecdotal, but I heard when it was created and put out there, there was some pushback from some acupuncturists that did not want the data to be collected on adverse events because there's a fear that there's already suspicion about us you know, integrating into the Western medical model. So if we started reporting adverse events, then that would be used against us, right? right. So it's, it's like that responsibility thing, like you can be an anti-vaxxer and then become a parent and then, oh, maybe my, my role in this as a stakeholder has changed. Or like, you know, we can criticize this adverse, uh, in, uh, at, the, the, the vaccine adverse events reporting system, but then when we want to have one, what are our feelings about that? See, as soon as you're on, it's on the line, you have so-called skin in the game, it changes. And you know, no one wants their intervention to look like it's hurting people. And honestly, I don't think acupuncture, generally speaking, is a risky intervention at all. But I know sometimes there are side effects and like, why don't report that data it's just an interesting thing um yeah because it's so minimal it probably doesn't matter that much but it would still be interesting to do well there have been large-scale studies of of acupuncture safety and adverse reactions and uh, it's it reminds me of large-scale studies on safety of, of certain vaccines too yes there are adverse things that happen some of them pretty serious and unfortunate but for the most part, those are very rare. And that's why you do these large scale studies. Like nothing is perfectly safe. Uh, and it's just, unfortunately that the risk, that's why somebody coming into my clinic signs a waiver. It says, I understand there are risks. <laughs> I understand that I could be injured by you putting a needle in me. Uh, but I still want the treatment because I also understand that it's, it's rare because you're a trained professional. So, exactly. And this is kind of a morbid joke, but um, <laughs> if we all go out of business as acupuncturists, maybe we could just switch over to being uh, vaccine injectors because we do really well with needles. But <laughs> I don't think many people would make the transition willingly or easily. But it is interesting how they're both preventative in nature, in a sense, and also they can help um after the fact in terms of acupuncture but um they both aren't very risky generally speaking statistically speaking um acupuncture or vaccinations have a lot more benefits than risks compared to a lot of things and that's right and what we'll do in the in the long run is is look at that research and we're open as well to having this discussion or or hearing from anyone who wants to give any insight or bring in their perspective on this issue, since it's something that uh, is is very complicated. We're also eventually going to get into the discussion, the more specific discussion of the, the association between 
the MMR vaccine and autism, the idea that that was pushed uh, by a flawed study and then continues to be referenced despite it being completely refuted and and also discuss just it's it's a good entryway into looking at the ongoing unraveling of the complex disease that is autism uh, and the idea that uh, certain diseases are caused by a wide variety of of converging factors and environmental factors, which are beyond our control at a personal level, but on a large community level, we, we could be trying to vote for politicians or vote for leaders that actually take those concerns seriously. And yes, yes, that's, I mean, like, we can go into that as well. So there's a lot of things we'll eventually hit on. We just want to open this, this container, so to speak, and start steeping in it. And then we'll will unravel more specific studies and, and specific issues over time. So someone will come on here and school us about our mistakes or things that we could add to this. I mean, we did accuse someone of painting with a broad stroke. So um, we've done a similar thing, but we will follow up on it. And I think you're referring to the Dutch study with the MMR. Right. Um, yeah, with almost a million people in it. So yeah, we can check that one out. Great. Yeah, and then other new research we can bring in, um, looking at what causes what we know about autism and what causes it. There was a new study that just came out, looking at a certain type of certain genetic certain genetic um, factors that are are being better understood, and how it's just extremely complex, and that we can't tie it to one thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask the question: Is this one thing contributing or signaling or triggering, um, but it's it's important to ask questions and feel comfortable and, and like you've been saying, feel safe to ask these questions without getting completely shut down. We feel like everything should be an open discussion, especially in, in medicine and, and when making personal decisions. But there are good reasons to respect respect experts who put in the years of, of effort trying to make sense of very complex, challenging, large topics and large areas of research. And so we shouldn't outright reject either of those sides. And that's and what we're trying to do. That was discussed in, we'll have to post the study, but the COVID-19 false dichotomy study. Yeah. That was discussed in there as well. Like, you know, there's no need to shame make anyone feel bad to investigate a, something going on with their health or their community's health and actually um, engaging people from where they're at and using language that they can understand by simplifying it to convey messages without being harsh and insulting is a really good thing to learn uh, how to do, um, especially as the knowledge we have is amassed and shared. Um, it can be daunting for a beginner to understand any of the words you're using and just to remember that and uh, relate it in a way that's personable yet um, is still trusting their innate intelligence. And just that's a hard thing to do with health topics because it is very complex. Like you're saying, what causes autism? Like, you know, every week someone's very sure about what it is. Oh, it's the vaccines or it's a certain adjuvant in the vaccine and then it's not that so then it's something else so then you know it not being so sure something's the case but at least being willing to consider the possibility or the possibilities of a complex issue um 
it just seems like we come back to that every single episode that everyone just wants something to be one thing and then they stop that one thing and have this one cure this one pill one thing causes autism but it seems like it's a little more complex than that so i think drinking tea really helps get in that mindset where the mutual uh dichotomies and opposition oppositional thought patterns can just like coexist and that's what i appreciate about taiji and these other internal practices is they're just letting you be like physically calm with all these differing ideas floating around and being okay with saying i don't know i'm gonna wait and see um, i'd like to, to do yeah i'd like to close this section reading the final remarks from that false dichotomy paper they say quote the black or white fallacy is pervasive and attractive it offers an escape from uncertainty science policy and risk of infection lie on a spectrum of gray shades they are not binary or should not be regarded as such for the sake of public health amid the covid 19 pandemic we make a call to change the black or white messaging comprehensive messaging and science-informed policies that reckon with uncertainties and social contexts are long overdue naturally the views set out here will evolve as newer findings on sars cov2 and covid19 emerge end quote and so we could say the same things around other complex very challenging topics like vaccines i mean i couldn't say it better that's a really great way to talk about it and i really like what they said about acknowledging the social context that medicine exists in. yeah there's some upgrades we need on our communication in the public health world and it's just all medical practitioners it's an evolving challenge to communicate these ideas cultures change time goes on yeah yeah So we're looking at Kamala Harris, current candidate for vice president for the Democratic Party. Uh, we're looking at her, her Zui Doshu chart, which is a, an astro astrological system that dates back, I believe, to the Tang Dynasty. Um, is interesting potential links to Persian astrology. It actually looks similar to a lot of Western astrology in that there are 12 different houses or sections or palaces that the chart is broken up into and this system is very mathematical it's it's uh, not based on real locations of stars or planets or those kinds of things uh, the, the idea is that eventually at some point it, it was based on those things but um, the way Ming described it was that what probably happened is is they saw that there were so few changes that there are these patterns that occur and that the variations on those patterns is very subtle. So it's almost like those variations are somewhat noise that should just be disregarded and that we can really simplify the system based on these patterns down to a very strict, more strict or clean mathematical model. Uh, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've heard of this system, excuse me, is that if it's a little bit off with someone's reading, you can move the hour up or down and get a couple alternate charts and then be like, oh, what happened in your life? And you can track the events to the time they happened and then find the more pure, accurate chart. Is that your understanding? or I don't like to do that. Uh, that seems sloppy to me and fraught with a lot of guessing and, and like uh, you're filling in what you 
you're 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 like hunting for confirmation bias if that makes sense yeah i just i try to get somebody's exact time of birth and the best is to have their birth certificate which is what brought this all up because Kamala's birth certificate was published online so we could see exactly what time she was born. So was she born here really? I mean, I heard that she might actually not according to some of the numbers. What do you think about that? Well, her birth certificate said she was born in Oakland, California, so I'm gonna go with she was born here. Who do you independent who verified that? I paper? think you're just stirring up shit because <laughs> because okay, let's just move on. Like yeah. we all know what's true about that. Yeah. No need to even give credence to those people. Those credence. Sorry. <laughs> so it might be helpful just to quickly uh, quote uh, an expert in Chinese astrology, Derek Walters. And he has some comments on what, what this approach to astrology is. And that can lead to some other discussions down the road. But I'm going to read a quote from his, his book, uh, The Complete Guide to Chinese Astrology, published 1987 by Derek Walters. This is on page 273. Suan Ming could be accurately described as, translated as fortune telling in the old sense of the word tell, meaning to reckon or calculate as in the bank teller. However, the expression has a specific meaning that is now translated by the term fate calculation. This is a method of looking into future events by means of a complex system of numerology, which is particularly Chinese, having no parallel in any other culture. A byproduct of astrology, its calculations are based directly on the calendar rather than the astronomical events on which the calendar is based. The reasons for its creation stem from the fact that grand astrology was reserved for the imperial court, and there was a demand for a lesser astrology which could be used to determine the destinies of the common people. Although the use of tables of planetary positions was forbidden on pain of death, it seemed to some astrologers that so regular and ordered were the motions of the heavens that it was no longer necessary to observe them. In this, of course, the fate calculators differed from the heaven watchers, who discovered and recorded such events as comets, novae, and the mysterious chi. In fact, the criteria of fate calculation were entirely numerical. End quote. It's just kind of reiterating what I was describing that uh, this system is not like Western astrology or Vedic astrology, where they're very concerned with the exact location of actual planets and stars and things like that. So let's just keep that in mind. It's, it's an interesting, unique system. And I've been studying it with Ming for many years at this point. I like that introduction. I know in Batsa, there's a uh, blind man's, blind person's method where you can calculate a chart with your fingers like by memorizing certain symbols on the different parts of your hand. So yeah, it's numerology. And I really like that. Why does it all have to be so precise? Like does the exact precise location of a planet tell you more than this system of patterns and events that recur throughout time? That's a good question. Well, and that brings up the question, how precise are these systems anyway? I mean, what is the goal of, of looking and calculating someone's fate? Uh, in this case, and I, I kind of, tend to believe that the idea is to get a, a, a broad kind of picture of the, the arc of one's life, uh, the ups and downs, the general patterns we should look out for. Um, I never learned or haven't learned, and I don't know if it's even possible using the system to do very detailed daily transit readings or something. You can do 10 and one year cycle readings, but I, I think that's as specific 
as you're going to get. And I think it becomes, uh, it's a pitfall trying to think that you can use it to, to answer very specific questions. I think these kinds of systems allow you to reflect on much larger questions. So that's it's just a thought. So just to talk about it for a second, for people that might have a mild uh, introduction to this. So there's 12 um, palaces in a square or rectangle, and it appears like each one of them has some meaning attributed to it, like the friends travel or health palace or house in this case, and a uh, stem and a branch uh, attached to them in the Chinese cosmological system, and some stars or asterisms that are in each segment which seem to have some kind of grading. And if I recall correctly, it's their relative brightness or influence on that area of, of the person's fate, um, farther calculation of their fate. Is that, would you agree with that? Does that like kind of visualize it for someone? Like we're looking at a chart, it's split into 12 sections and there's some stars in the different parts. Yeah, and the stars you could say represent different influences. I'm gonna pull up uh, yes, and of course the person's uh, natal chart and details are in the center. It's, you know, it's probably pretty important, right? Yeah, and actually that brings up another aspect of the system, or at least the tradition that I have been taught, is that you you look at two major things. You look at the person's character, uh, which is determined by the, the four pillars there, or the batsa, and that determines or gives us a sense of who this person is and how they will be in the world. And then there's the chart itself, uh, the, the 12 different houses or palaces or whatever you want to call them. And they are almost like the stage uh, on which your character plays out its, its fate. Uh, so it's helpful to understand who this person is in the context of their fate. Uh, so it's not just like you're a person, everyone is the same. No, you're a <laughs> u- unique person. And you, if we gave your fate to a different person, the experience of that would be different. The, the measures of success and challenge and failure would be different uh, for different characters. So like you and I, in different situations, one of us will thrive and one of us will be uncomfortable and vice versa. So that's that's the idea here and that understanding the character is extremely important and it's usually where we start. So the main things we're going to look at are the year she was born and the hour. Those are two key in this tradition anyway. And uh, I can't tell you exactly why those two are the ones selected. There are lots of different systems that may go into finer detail and, and like the system that you study, you look at all of them and all of them give you different information. So. In this system, we just look at the year and the hour. And what's interesting to me, I mean, you're giving me some uh, flashbacks here for when I was studying this more intensely. A lot of this is just about rotational direction, going with something, going against something, and uh, sequences of time. We're on a planet that's rotating, we're in orbit, there's the heavens that are exposed in different parts of our transit, and, you know, doing these arts of like, you know, Tai Chi and Bagwajong, you're rotating around in circles. I just remember when this was all new, I just was asking, like, why is this so obsessed with, like, flow and counterflow, rotation, up and down? It's all in this in Chinese medicine as well. It's really great. So yeah, it's, it's all about, thing. it's truly an animistic system in that it's all about how things are in relationship with one another. So we are in an equal 
relationship with all of, of reality and we have to honor our place in it and understand our place in it to to be happy, comfortable and successful. So so that's what this system is for. So if we look at Kamala Harris's chart and her year, she's a wood dragon. She was born October 20th, 1964 in the Chinese hour uh, between 9 and 11 p.m. And that's, uh, I think we determined that it was before daylight savings. So on October 20th, 1964 at 9.30 p.m. with daylight savings taken into consideration, she's a wood dragon, born the year of the wood dragon, an hour of the metal dog. So the primary driver or, uh, yeah, primary driver of her character is the wood dragon. Uh, now, the wood dragon is essentially the the most, uh, or sorry, dragon is internally uh, an earth element character or, or energy or, or animal or uh, phase. It is an earth phase, uh, the dragon. Wood dragon, uh, therefore, you basically take dragon and augment it with the wood nature. It adds wood always adds elements of insight, novelty, creativity, imagination, uh, freshness, newness. It's it's representative of the east. Wood is is reflective of spring and the the revitalizing energy of the early morning of of the the new year. And so you're adding that kind of quality to the dragon. And the dragon, being an earth character, is very dynamic, uh, oftentimes attributed. It is, it is pointed out by Ming that it's the only magical, non-real character in all of these images. So the dragon is that part of nature that is mysteriously powerful, hard to characterize, but palpable. Uh, this kind of raw energy moving through nature. Um, so it's a very appealing and, and for, for good reason, uh, culturally, there's a lot of importance attached to people born the year of the dragon in Asian cultures that, that put stock in these, these systems. Uh, and there's actually a fascinating study on, uh, that we can talk about someday that tried to look at if there's any correlation between the years people were born and, and how they're successful or not. And there's a, it brought up the question of are people born in the year of the dragon more successful and score better on tests and these kinds of things because their parents believe that they'll be more capable. And so they put more energy into their success or is there something about the system that kind of is identifying some inborn measurable pattern of, of, of more talent or skill or something. So that sounds juicy. I yeah, like that. It's really we should definitely go into that. Um, just for an interesting commentary on the dragon and our Bagwajong system, our first uh, palm is a snake and our second one is a dragon. So in our view, like a dragon is just like a snake with wings that moves around, but they're both kind of undulating, but, and they're kind of deep and mysterious, but they have like different approaches to power generation and their various undulations. So I don't know if that exactly applies, but it's fun to hear you talk about it. Yeah, so things about the dragon that we could say, what do you generally associate with the dragon? I'm curious uh, if, if you have any insight or, or perspective. Generally, just power 
and the ability to move um, over large distances. Like I think of it in terms of like an imperial presence, like the emperor, like would be like a dragon in my mind, like someone who's in charge, like a large organization. And I know that the dragon and the rats tend to like combine well. So there's like the big and the small and that kind of duality there. And I've seen a lot of those interactions with people I actually know, um, watch that play out. But to me, it would be like, what kind of dragon? Like, eh, this is a wood dragon. So that would be different, you know, from the other four elements you could attach to a dragon. And so that's been more, um, my interest is um, looking at like the five element associations within the natal chart. So I don't know if that applies the same way to this system, but yeah, generating wood growth, overcoming like a, kind of a powerful, wonderful presence that can just move and shake things and keep growing in the face of adversity. I don't know if that's totally off. No, those fit uh, what, what I have in my notes as well. They're very strong, charismatic, generally considered what we would call lucky. Uh, they just have a natural success about them. They're ambitious, outgoing, consistent, confident, adventurous, assertive, willful, flamboyant, grand, generous, and demanding. And so these are positive, interpreted as positive aspects of what we would consider dragon energy, young earth energy, or young earth qualities specific to the dragon. And these are all notes from Ming's Manticarts and Zoe Doshu notes. So if anyone's curious where I'm getting this. That's and funny. Um, just to briefly interject, when I was first talking to Ming, he learned I was uh, learning this other Fatsa system, and he told me on the side, he's like, you know, that's really kind of just folk astrology. Don't tell anyone I told you that. But he's like, that's not really a good thing to study. So he, he started <laughs> me out like on the one you've learned, but he unfortunately passed away. So I'm really happy I can keep learning and hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I think he described that as what Derek Walters was talking about as the folk kind of astrology you'd find in a farmer's market in Asia, as opposed to like what the imperial court's doing for the emperor and his family. Sort yeah. Of. It's more about like who you're going to date or marry, probably like more about community concerns. Uh, yeah, maybe the big picture. That, yeah, maybe that's enough for an average person. So the the dragon's more dark side, so to speak, <laughs> is is their stubbornness, their insensitivity, their aloofness. Uh, they can be overly dramatic and sarcastic. They have a tendency to be compulsive. Maybe a side effect of having too much power is, is becoming compulsive. Attention-hungry, garish, blunt, overconfident, egotistical, selfish, and unrealistic. I have so, a study in my mind that I want to design. How many militant vegan dragons are there? Because like a lot of those <laughs> like, traits are like people who absolutely are going to do something one way and the right and they tell you and show you and it's going to be a thing and it matters. It's part of who they are. Like I know a lot of people like that. Yeah, this brings up a whole other can of worms, the whole idea of, of personality studies in, in psychology and these different personality systems. So it's an interesting discussion. Well, we get to talk about Kamala here. What's, what's the deal? So, what's going so on that's, with her? That's her main kind of driving the picture of her. So it's interesting that people recently, and in the headlines, there was a big hullabaloo about people criticizing her as being overly ambitious. Uh, <laughs> now, from a from this perspective, from a uh, Chinese astrological perspective, we'd say, yeah, no, duh, she's a dragon. She's a wood dragon, too. Like, she's got this ever 
churning source of renewed ambition. She's, that's who she is. <laughs> so uh, sometimes that's actually a, a very desirable skill, I'd say, in, in terms of a, a politician. I, I would expect most politicians are pretty uh, ambitious, but uh, that brought up whole gender gendered ideas of what's acceptable in terms of ambition and uh, yeah I, I, my first thought about that criticism was such as sexism right why can women be ambitious they should be if they yeah. want to be right and in terms of her i don't know too much about her it's just she's obviously an ambitious person in her career and and has risen up as a woman of color uh, a child of immigrants in in a very competitive uh, challenging field in terms of law enforcement and law and uh, becoming the attorney general for the entire state of California. I'm sure there's a lot of challenges to that and find yourself in having to make unfortunate or difficult situations, but dragons, uh, I would, I would think would be suited to these kinds of big, difficult problem solving challenges. Now looking Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just saying um, for my brief studies, like whenever I see the word like blade in someone's chart, like usually there's something not so great there as seeing like goat blade in their property chart, but I'm not entirely sure. But. So one thing to keep in mind, uh, it brings up a good point, is that everyone has the same stars just in different orientations or different positions. So everyone has that star goat blade in their chart. So it's everyone has that somewhere. And, and that brings up an interesting philosophical question around this system is, if everyone has these same influences, how, how do you make sense of anyone's unique fate? Um, if, you, if you have Qing Yang or the goat blade in your chart, how is that different from me and my chart uh, or that person in their chart? And it's about the, the context, the position of it in, in the context of your character and uh, where in, in relationship that influence appears and how strong it is or how overshadowed it is or how highlighted it is. So it could be an issue. That star tends to be problematic, but it also has some positive angles to it. So it, we'll get to those things later on. And I think today we'll just kind of get into the first bit of her character and then we can finish up when we have time the, the rest of her chart. But um, I'm just asking, do you have Biden's birth details? Could we do I haven't, this chart? Yeah, we could. I haven't looked at anybody else's, but we'll, we can do a little project, like a series uh, for our astrology folks. And this is definitely one of those topics as well, that if an expert in the field wants to uh, come out and help us, that yeah. would be really great. So finishing up her character reading, she is also born the hour of the metal dog. Dog is another earth character. Dog is is another yang earth. So she's got two yang earth dimensions driving her character. Um, so just on those fundamental levels, yang being kind of the outward moving expressions of, of power and earth being about convention and strength in coherence and strength in consolidation uh, and the the richness of consolidation or convergence around community convergence around convention these kinds of ideas earth from a human perspective is about consistency and uh, constancy and those kinds of ideas with what makes a dog unique from, let's say, like the other Earth 
characters and earth images you have the image of the dog which everyone is familiar with is is typically most associated with that sense of loyalty and protective caring quality there's also the other positive dimensions of of dog being directness helpfulness intuitiveness insightfulness dogs are are more private characters generally in this system calm under fire just expansive congenial and quiet and their more negative dark side would be their stubbornness their argumentativeness their spitefulness they have some vanity they can be rigid and frozen with anxiety when they're depleted stingy and excessively critical so that loyalty can be negative let's say like a loyalty to a belief system or a loyalty to someone can lead you into uncomfortable rigid critical stances let's say just thinking about it that way so a metal dog you're adding the, the element of metal to this dog nature this kind of root nature of dog metal being the element of autumn of cutting away and uh, distilling down of things to their most valuable most precise most relevant most important aspects do you have any thoughts on on metal um i'm just looking at the chart to see how much metal was actually in it so mm. that's kind of how i've looked at it is just to see the different quantities of the elements um while you were talking there i was looking at this thing called the 12 stage growth cycle from Botsa, and you compare the day stem the month, the month branch. So that would be, um, I believe the day stem is young metal, I believe, or sorry, young water, my bad. Wait, what are you doing? So if we look at the um, day, the day stem, um, Ren, that is a water, right? But it's like, is that young water or yin water? I believe it's young water. And then so you compare that, that um, day stem to the month, branch so it'd be young water and then the month branch would be you know dog obviously right mm -hmm. so in this 12, 12 stage growth cycle it talks about how the different elements wax and wane in relationship to each other okay so that would put her in this system into the fourth stage of adolescence excuse me the fourth stage let me repeat that um would be uh, adulthood so someone who is a strong force who desires fame management leadership they're intelligent mature honest and open-minded and they're an independent self-made person with potential for wealth success and fame and they're compatible at this stage in their fate cycle to be a executive in leadership management so that's interesting that, that correlates with some of what you've been saying this right. system's approach interesting and that arrived at that information by looking at the day and the month the day and the month so it's a completely independent system that has um a very similar message to what this system's saying you don't have to include that in i just always check that out and yeah. see if the, the two systems um, match up and in a lot of cases they actually do it's pretty weird how that works yeah it is so in terms of this system, metal being applied to that dog character, it adds elements of, of refinement and discretion to the, the underlying character. So well, dog is metal, right? No, dog is earth character. Oh, okay. So it adds fastidiousness and refinement, as I was saying, 
it also can lead to someone being a little bit more withdrawn, a little more reserved and confident and self-reflective than, say, other characters. Uh, there's also a more, there's tendency to be more spiritual and political and intellectual. And metal lends transcendence and mysticism to any of the zodiac animal signs, says Ming. So that adds kind of a, a an element of like the f- philosopher, if we give it a character, uh, to to that kind of underlying nature of the dog, which tends to be very um, committed to ideas, committed to people, committed to family, and those things that are determined or decided to be of value to the, the person. Usually and, family, family being some of the most valuable things for most most humans. To speak of that in general, like the time that we're entering into, those are some pretty good values, actually. Yeah. Um, with the changing environment and landscape of the U.S. and you know the coronavirus and all the things that are happening, um, so on with the commitment to families and like that visionary quality, you know that uh, ability yeah, that, to see like where we should go in general. That's pretty useful right. right now. It's an interesting dynamic she has here with the wood dragon and the metal dog. There's a nice underlying foundation of, of earth and earth, young earth dragon, young earth dog. But then there's the, the augmenting of the stems, the wood for the dragon and the metal for the dog. It gives a very nice dynamic nature, the ability to both be reflective and also imaginative and open to, to new ideas, uh, but also uh, careful at the same time. So that's interesting. At one one thing I'm looking at, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not seeing a lot of fire in this chart. So I wonder what that would do in a time of a cycle where that was predominant, what that yeah. would, how that influence the chart. Yeah. I think fire adds a lot more uh, energy, potential aggression, which can be useful. Also some vigor and, and uh, risk taking uh, some, yeah, the ability to kind of break up and energize situations and, and dynamics. Um, also sensuality would be uh, something we associate with fire and courage, which uh, are useful at times. Maybe a fire dragon is a little too daring and too spontaneously aggressive. Um, <laughs> maybe a wood dragon is a little more delicate in their movement forward uh, or delicate in their use of their raw power, so to speak. But fire does make for a very inspiring leader, I think, usually. Well, we'd have to look at, like, Biden's chart. and see Yeah, how those we'll look interact. at uh, his and, and uh, Trump's chart as, to, as well, if we can get those. When we look at Trump's, I mean, how much orange element do you think is going to have? <laughs> Sorry, that's a really bad joke, but I, I just thought I needed to mention the Oompa Loompa quality yeah. at one point. It's definitely noticeable. <laughs> uh, uh, so before we wrap up and, and kind of we'll come back to this and go through each of the houses but the next step in when we look at a chart in the system that's the way to issue system is to look then and take that character that we've tried to to grok obviously it's it's a broad painting of somebody it's not going to give you like every nuance of their their character but it's a, a good picture of who they tend to be and with that information, we're going to go to the Ming house, the house of someone's destiny. And, and traditionally, this house is often used 
to determine also personality traits and qualities of a person, uh, not just the, the overall picture of their fate, which is kind of the, the general reading of this uh, house. So this house is, I think the way Ming described it is, it's essentially like a summary, a little cheat sheet in a sense on the overall arc and themes of of person's life and, and gives you a sense of the weight of their fate. Uh, and that brings up an interesting concept of, of fate versus freedom. And essentially what this system is is attempting to do is, is really understand where there is a lot of, of predetermined unraveling and, and I'm trying to use other words than fate, but we, we know what fate is. Yeah, fate is is also another word for it is karma in some traditions. So the idea that there's some kind of unraveling of experience that has to occur in order to achieve freedom. And then, then there are places in people's charts and lives where there's relative freedom. And so we're constantly looking for where those places of fate are and where they those places of freedom are and and how are they interacting what areas of your life what relationships in your life uh, are complicated and which are easy or which do you have kind of obligation in and where do you have uh, a lack of obligation where is there uh, more choice available and it's a hard concept, I think, because in this system, there isn't just fate is a predetermined, everything is predetermined. There's actually a, an acceptance and a, an acknowledgement that some things are predetermined and some things are not. And life is a dance between those polar opposites. And it can get fairly complicated and nuanced. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a heavy fate and a, or a moment of obligation and a moment of freedom uh, because I think this is getting a little bit uh, philosophical even no, more that's, deep that's but, okay but how do you know you how do how will you know when you're enlightened how will you know when you're free uh, is a question that comes up when we're talking about these things so how do you know you've resolved your fate how do you know you've you've gone through a karmic knot and come out free of it. And that's a question that we're often asking when we're looking at these different houses and, and influences. And, and when a, a house is empty, there is a mechanism to, let's say, borrow from across the chart. But there's also the recommendation, especially from Ming, he would say, don't be so quick to fill that in with information uh, sometimes an empty house says a lot more than uh, about freedom and the space between fate the space between obligation than it does about the the influences swirling around it so good things to think about as we look at someone's chart in the system and uh, try to distinguish the system from other systems of astrology that try to fill everything in with uh, very specific or very uh, detailed fate because sometimes there just isn't information there but that is actually useful information but it's hard to explain that to 
to people sometimes like now that correlates with a lot of the internal art practice um, ideas i've experienced that like when you're moving and doing the forms like you can get addicted to a certain sensation or feeling and you'll just replicate it over and over but like a sign of progress is that maybe you just feel good in general even and there's not any strong feeling in any particular area and it's hard it's more difficult to notice what's not there right than what is there exactly and I also had like a dumb joke too, like when you're saying like there's different um, levels of fate interfering or coming into our lives to influence us. I was like, is that like a viral load of COVID-19? Like some people have like, they're sitting, because it's like palaces and rooms, like maybe this one room, fate's really going to get to you in this because you're just really sleeping in that area, like like your property or something is terrible. With That's an interesting analogy. Things. Yeah. It's it could be totally flawed, dude. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting analogy. We'll wrap up on this, the meaning of this first palace, because it is important. The it, Ming? You're, you're talking yeah, about the Ming, first one. the Ming palace. It's, again, the summary of, of fate. And it also has hints of character and, and gives you a, some more depth to what we should expect from this person's character, uh, nuances and, and features of their fate. As Ming says, quote, the Ming palace contains a concentrated image of a person's dance of fate. Stars appearing here should reveal one's prime fate image. If it compares favorably with the four pillar character, a person is called lucky character, fate, harmony, end quote. So he's basically saying that we're always trying to answer the question, is the person's character, which we looked at uh, at the beginning, is it, is there a harmony or a, a what he was saying, a favorable comparison or, or is, is their character in a favorable context in these influences in this house? Uh, and that can tell us a lot. So if we're trying to do a really quick reading on somebody, we would get their character, their four pillars, look at their year and their hour, and then quickly look at the main palace and say, uh, yeah, you don't have to worry <laughs> about much. Just keep going and you'll be fine. Or, hmm, uh, yeah, your life might be challenging. Uh, let's dig deeper to see where it might be challenging and how to kind of shore up your strengths and overcome the challenges. So it can be a useful, quick read. So to continue, quote, the attributes of the stars here show a person's overall given capacities and opportunities in this life. A typical reading of this house relates the contents to a person's physical appearance which is often a tool used by fortune tellers, he says, or personality, which is more akin to modern psychology. But it is often a mistake to take the stars in this place, uh, sorry, in this palace so lightly. Though this house is usually read first, it is a good idea to read it again or last with the insight gained from the fate found in the other 11 houses, end quote. So again, this is a summary. So it's helpful to kind of come back to the summary after you've read all the chapters and kind of recontextualize everything under this this kind of broader themes, the broader themes here. It makes sense, like the beginning and the end are related, um, and the, the ways that cycles work. Like it seems like Ming's taking a lot of these general principles of how the medicine and the uh, Chinese, Chinese cosmology works in general and applying it to this chart. And, uh, like even what you're saying earlier, like if a uh, area is empty you could look at the opposite area to fill it in so you look at opposites not just one thing it's just like yeah you use the word again steep and all that kind of philosophy and worldview i love it oh, so we're going to find some details about this uh ming house
house uh, policy. I should say one more thing uh, about fate again that this house brings up is is that this house also gives us a sense of a person's the overall weight of their fate. Do they have a light fate or a heavy fate? Do they have a lot of karma to resolve or 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 a little bit of karma to resolve? Because we all come into the the world with karma, otherwise we wouldn't come into the world, right? That's the idea. You, you exist. Uh, therefore, you you have things to resolve, even if it's just your body eventually dying. <laughs> uh, nice. And and there's a, an attempt here in this this house, this palace, to try to determine the level of or the quantity or the heaviness of someone's fate. So, um, is there a lot of predestined obligation and responsibility and or affinities? Is this all going to require like a big effort and or a certain kind of character to succeed uh, is there a strong character to overcome large fate or or is there a person given insurmountable fate with a kind of weak or challenged flawed character so it's kind of questions you look for and answer look for answers here so um, and and light fate is, is when there's little or no obligation you come in with little or no responsibilities towards certain people or relationships or, or paths. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just the things in this house should be read as kind of principal themes of our fate, not just incidental events uh, or incidental relationships. So we always come back to this house as kind of the root or canopy of the, the overall reading. So one thing he he states and one thing we look for here if if there are no stars in this house it indicates a lifetime where freedom is of prime significance and or a lifetime of cleaning up minor karmic details that would be like borrowed stars when it when empty it also indicates that how we spend our freedom becomes more significant than our fate obligations borrowed stars that enter the empty ming palace should be interpreted as a relatively as relatively delicate matters that should be handled in a subtle way to avoid acquiring a new entanglement, new entanglements and or heavier fate. So it's a kind of a warning that just because you're born with little karma and little fate, that doesn't mean you can't find yourself squandering it and creating all kinds of problems and more fate for yourself. So it's more understanding of the system. So and just as a quick note, we could totally put this chart out for anyone to look at if you're willing, or I don't know if you'd be willing to do that. If yeah. not, delete delete it from the segment. No, we'll put it up and people can look at it and re read along with us as, as we go in future uh, episodes. And um, have her Wikipedia page open as well. Um, and just, you know, oh, that'd be go through this. Like, you know, her parents have some really interesting history so we could probably go through this and find some really nice parallels but we'll do the reading first and then see yeah i think that's a good way to do it okay i won't look at it anymore i don't want to um prime my data database here so we'll we'll just point out the stars that are there and then next time we will go into the details of what they mean and how all of them together what that how we can interpret it a cliffhanger people so, have to listen to the next one she has quite a complex arrangement here of a number of things. So she has what we call uh, the tutor, uh, which is Tian Xiang, which is one of the most influential stars that there is. 
She also has Wenchang, or the magistrate, the scholar. She also has a star that's Lian, sorry, Lian Jian. Lian Jian is the concubine. She also has the left assistant, Zhou Fu. She also has a very minor star called the fire star, which is Huo Xing. So that is a lot going on in one house. It's going to take a lot of time to kind of deconstruct everything, but it'll be a fun dive into what is obviously a, a complex and interesting fate for someone who is obviously stepping into a very historic role, being the first prominent woman of color as vice president. So, so we'll follow up on this with the details of the Ming house, the destiny fate house. Thank you.